Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Do I have this good? All right. So it's Palm Sunday. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, I had talked with uh, Pastor Dominique about having the kids come down and and wave palm branches just so we did something for Palm Sunday because we're not talking about it at all. Um, <laughs> but then I realized, you know, our kids' ministry is is pretty small, and, and I know my child that's up there in particular would just fall to her face on the ground in embarrassment, so um, we didn't do that. I also joked about playing a scene from my favorite Jesus movie, Jesus Christ Superstar, where he proceeds into, yeah, if you've seen it, you know, it's hilarious. Um, the little hippie group dressing up and playing through the story of Jesus. It's great. I love it. Um, but today we are actually going to be closing out our series on soul alignment. Um, we've been looking at two of the prayers of Jesus. First, we talked about the Lord's Prayer, and now we've been in the high priestly prayer in John 17, and um, this prayer is a great lead-in to Holy Week because this comes right before that kicks off and Jesus is betrayed just after this. And so that's what we're going to be finishing up today. Um, I'm going to read through all of it. We're just talking about the last part, but I just feel like a recap is good. So we're going to kind of read quickly through it, and I'll slow down and focus on the part we're actually talking about today. So um, that should be up on the screen for you. So John 17. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the one only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you have given me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave me I have given them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf, or uh, I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you, give, you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word, world has hated them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. 
As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, so that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now today's passage. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Wesley, can you bring my water up here? Back there, my husband. Hey. <laughs> All right, I'm going to pray real quick, and we'll get into it. Holy God, just ask that you guide me today as we talk about the word that you've given me and the scripture, God. And... Uh, yeah, just lead me and open our eyes, open our ears. Let us hear your word, Lord. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so we had a couple of um, sessions on this. In the first session, Caleb talked about the very first few verses, verses 1 through 5, and in those we see that Jesus is praying for himself. And last week, Chris Clark talked about verses um, 6 through 19, and we see Jesus praying for his disciples. Well, and now we kind of have a turn in the prayer. And in this last part, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is looking ahead to those who will receive the message about him from the disciples. And he is praying for the church, or what will become the church. So when Jesus prays for future believers, he specifically prays that they may all be one. At the end of this prayer, Jesus is praying for unity among future believers. And the interesting thing about John's gospel is that it's actually one of the later, well, it is the latest gospel that we have of the four. Um, in fact, in its like final form, it probably came almost 100 years after Jesus died. But even its earliest parts were after the other Gospels. So what Jesus is praying about here, that, that those, for those that will believe in me through their word, it's already happened. Um, there are many believers hearing these words that never knew Jesus at all, as they're hearing John's Gospel. They, they didn't know Jesus in person. These are the people that he's praying for. Um, so it's important that it's included not only for them, but also for us. Because we're also those future believers that Jesus is praying for. But it's a long way from the disciples and the early church uh, to us. And um, you just looking around today might kind of wonder if uh, the church has ever been one. Maybe. So as I was... Um, preparing to, to preach on this and thinking through this, this passage, um, I was pondering if a brief lesson in church history might be appropriate. 
use, dust off some of that old seminary knowledge, you know. And in Chris's sermon last week, um, he mentioned some differences in the church along the racial divide, specifically, and that kind of pushed the idea more in my head. And then after the events of this week in Nashville and seeing the continued political rhetoric that has been tied to my faith, I came to the conclusion that it's really important that we see a little bit of um, what the church is and how it came to be. Um, and I have a lot of feelings, um, and I'm, I've been trying so hard in my heart to focus on the words of Jesus and separate my feelings from the words of Jesus and knowing that that's almost impossible sometimes. Um, so I'm going to do my best this morning um, to, to be true to the word. Okay, so Church History 101. Welcome to class. Um, some of you might be well-versed in this stuff, um, and some of you may know very little about how we got to where we are today or what kind of church you've walked into. Um, and, and the truth is, like, what I'm about to tell you is, like, super brief because um, we need lunch today. Um, and this isn't a full class or actually a class that was divided into two in seminary. So, um, yeah, but I'm hoping that the parts that I'm highlighting will just help us all to see things a bit more clearly and give us some insights to today's passage. Okay? Try not to fall asleep. I'm going to keep it interesting. I got visuals. So let's go back to the disciples, okay? Um, what happened to them after Jesus? We know that Jesus died and resurrected and came back and was with them for a while and then ascended into heaven, okay? What happened to the disciples after that? Well, we get some of that in the Bible itself, in the book of Acts. Um, but basically, from what we know, they dispersed across the ancient world, spreading the word and starting churches. And I've got a couple of maps to kind of show the, um, the spread of this, just so you can kind of see. It's relevant and fun. Um, there's a lot online if you want to go, like, look early church maps, and you can follow along um, in the Bible, too, with how things go. It's super fun, to me anyway. Um, and so this is what they did, and then almost all of them were killed for spreading this new faith. See, the Roman Empire did not like any movement that stood to challenge their authority, and Christianity was definitely one of those. Um, we also have Paul. You guys have probably heard of him. So he comes along, and he's a major leader in the early church as well, alongside Peter, though we end up with a lot more of his writings and influence in Scripture, just kind of how it happens. Um, and in Paul's letters, we see how the early churches were already struggling to define their beliefs and practices, and were having disagreements because of it. And that's kind of a lot of the point of Paul's letters was trying to sort that out, right? And the truth is the early church... Um, was really plagued with a lot of um, different kind of offshoots of Christianity we called like early sects, S-E-C-T-S. 
I realized as I was practicing this, sounds like something else, more fun when I say it, but sex. Um, so these, these little groups that kind of popped up around, um, were, they took a lot of the Christian ideas and the, the message of Jesus, and then they kind of mixed it with some Greek philosophy and stuff. And so they're parading around alongside the early church, and everyone's like, what's going on? Um, in my, in my um, undergraduate work, I did a big thesis project on one of these sects, and they were um, called the Valentinians. Um, they were like a Gnostic sect. The Gnostics were a big, big deal. Um, and I actually argued that they had a better interpretation of sin than Paul. Little heretic I was. I know better now. Just had to share that. Um, so anyway, that's going on like crazy, and people are writing and being like, no, this is actually what Jesus said, and this is what's right. Um, but it was kind of hard to get it together. And then in um, the year 313, Constantine makes Christianity a uh, legal religion, uh, and that made it kind of a lot easier to, for the church to gather across the world, like all these churches spread out to come together and to fully define the church's beliefs and distinguish them from these other ones floating around, okay? And one of the big ones we have, big examples of this is the Council of Nicaea. We get the Nicene Creed from it. But even that did not result in a fully united worldwide church. Um, from early on, there was this kind of division happening between the churches from the western regions of the world and the eastern regions of the world. They were, a lot of us, they were dealing with very different things where they were at, different empires, different stuff going on. And um, when we get to the year 1054, there's a big schism, so the east-west schism, and I have a map for that too, so you can see. Um, and basically, they get, the church gets divided into two, and there's the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they kind of go their separate ways forever. Um, <laughs> but, oh, I'm skipping so much, but we got, we got to push through. Okay, so over here, we're going to focus over here now. The Roman Catholic Church is just having its heyday for a long time, right? And Christianity is continuing to spread, and... In the 16th century, a big thing happens. Maybe you've heard of it. The Protestant Reformation! Woohoo! Um, so basically, the, the Roman Catholic Church um, had a strong grip on people and control of the narrative and the faith because the Bible had only been published in Latin, and most people, if they read, read English. Um, and so there was a lot of abuse of power. A major complaint of the reformers was how the priests and bishops were basically trying to sell salvation through the purchase of indulgences. Um, they had basically corrupted the faith to be a profitable gain for themselves. And so um, that's kind of what the reformers come up against. There was um, an, a few English translations of the Bible published, and once they get more widespread, that's when we really see this movement take off. Um, last week, Chris talked about the importance of the word and how no, we can know God through scripture and how that's highlighted in this prayer of Jesus where he says, you know, I've given them the, your word. Um, so we can understand how the word being made more available to people would have a transformative effect, right? So Martin Luther, 
he's a big deal. Um, he kind of kicked off the Protestant Revolution. He nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church. Churchill didn't like that. You know, this is, this is my church history. I'm going to say it my way, so <laughs> welcome to class. Um, yeah, but basically in that, um, he was questioning the absolute authority of the Catholic Church and, and how they have... <laughs> Brooke, I love you so much right now. Thank you. <laughs> it's a meme! You guys know I love memes. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, he... So how they had had kind of control over that and... Um, there were other leaders, too, in this movement in other areas of the world. We've got John Calvin. We've got Huldrych Zwingli. Um, and those movements of faith later become denominations that we might recognize. Um, so it's kind of the idea is spreading all throughout, right? In England, the Protestant um, Reformation is really pushed forward by King Henry VIII, who basically starts a new church in which he's the ultimate authority. Um, to kind of push the Catholic Church aside. Um, and there's a lot of messiness in England um, trying to decide if the Catholic Church or this church, the Church of England, have authority after Henry. And in the process, some groups, there's uh, other groups forming, and they kind of break off and leave um, for seeking freedom religiously. And one of those groups were known as the Puritans, and they came here, and they are credited with the beginning of our own country. So that leads us to now, right? <laughs> Not really. A lot went on all over the world. A lot went on here. Um, but those, those early ideas of the Reformation spread. And a common problem faced in countries across the world was this establishment of an official church authority tied in with the government and pushing back against that. Um, America, though, still very much rooted in Protestant faith, um, was founded with the ideal of religious freedom in mind and separation of church and the government. And I wish I had time to like just talk about American history, but to be honest, I did not take American Christianity in seminary, and I wish I had. First of all, second of all, we don't have time. Um, I know Chris Clark has probably got a lot of good stuff there too that he could teach us, so maybe one day we can tag team it. Um, uh, but basically, what we see is there are many now different denominations and iterations of Christianity coexisting today alongside other faiths as well, and no one of them, ideally, has ultimate authority in our country. So once again, this is a very simplified version of church history. I encourage you to dig deeper if this sparks interest for you. I believe that only good can come of knowing and understanding our history. But my point in sharing these highlights is to show you how being one was difficult for believers from the very beginning up until now. And the fact that Jesus prayed for it shows that he also anticipated that. You know, I wish I had a great answer for you. I'm going to try my best um, to look. 
No, there isn't. But to look into the scripture and at least at least what Jesus in his prayer has for us. Um, yeah. Because he does, in the prayer, provide a model for us on how to be one and how to be united. So in the beginning of the prayer, he is describing um, his oneness with God, the Father. And then Jesus returns that same qualifier towards the disciples to be one and again towards future believers. Um, in verse 21, him, Jesus says that they might be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also be in us. I think it would be easy, right? Um, here's the interesting thing. So being one doesn't necessarily mean being the same. Um, being one doesn't necessarily mean being the same. So if we look at the relationship between Jesus and God, are they the same person? Aren't they? If Cora, my five-year-old, was in here, she'd say, yeah, mama, don't you know? Jesus is God. It's like the one thing she's got down at this point. <sighs> Love it. But no, the answer is they're not exactly the same person. Um, Jesus is fully human, and God is not. Jesus is also fully divine. I'm not spewing heretics up here. He's both. But his humanity sets him apart. And Jesus is not a puppet of God, right, on earth. We see that very clearly in how Jesus prays. He aligns himself with God's will even when it's a struggle for him. So Jesus and God are one in that their wills are aligned, and most importantly, their hearts are aligned. And that's what this series has really been about, right? Alignment with God. When we as individuals and as a church body align ourselves with God's will, that is when we become one. But in our desire for unity, we must not seek to eliminate our differences, okay? Jesus' disciples were very different. Um, they, their ministry as they spread across the world was different and was touching on issues within different cultures. We've been doing this Bible study through Lent called the Imago Dei, and, and the Imago Dei is literally the image of God and the idea in Genesis that God creates humanity in God's image. Humanity in all its diverse complexity. And the study really teaches us that our differences are something to be celebrated because they point us closer to who God is. So even though it seems like it would make things easier if we all were exactly the same, believe the same things, certainly, yeah, then uh, it'd, be, it'd be super easy to be one. Um, I think maybe one right church isn't the goal, that actually what we have might be closer to the image of God. Um, because if we look at history, like the only time the church has ever gotten close to that kind of unity um, was through gatekeeping scripture. Not great. The relationship between Jesus and God that we are to emulate, though, is also one of love and grounded in love. And the truth is, it's easy to love and be united in love if we're all the same. 
But the kind of love that Jesus calls us to is not necessarily the easy kind. Um, going back to my seminary days a lot here. So when I was in seminary, I think it was like my second semester or something, I signed up for this class. It was an ethics class on Christian love, and I was like, oh, great. This is going to be awesome. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy this. We're going to talk about Jesus' love. Well, I have all these hard classes. Y'all know. Oh, that class. First of all, we started off reading, reading Toni Morrison, so I should have known. Toni Morrison, beloved. Um, it was the hardest class I had, and it broke me. And at the end of that class, what we all took away was it is so hard for us to love one another. So, some good news. Um, if we look in verse 23 where Jesus says, so that they may be brought to complete unity, and we see this theme continuing last week. Um, Chris talked about this too, this idea of sanctification, right? The process of being made holy, that um, this is a process and that it likely will not be reached in this lifetime, right? Because though we are eternally free of sin, the marks of sin still cover us in this life. And so, yes, there are struggles for power and fighting and things that we look at that we're like, how could the church be this way, right? And the truth is it's easy to point out the sins of others, <laughs> other Christians, other churches. How could they say that? How could they vote that way? How could they think that, that my Jesus would stand for this, right? But it's a lot harder to address our own. The Imago Day study has brought me back to this truth a lot. Um, that it's really easy for me to look outward and judge, but it's a lot harder to do the, the work inward and see my own sins, see my own biases, see my own places where I am twisting and warping the word. And I don't think we can hope for change in the church or the world in general if we don't start with a change in our own hearts. Um, as I'm saying that, I'm suddenly having Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror, stuck in my head. So, <laughs> you're welcome. Now it's in yours. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yep. I mean, it's the words of Jesus, too, right? And, and so, that's kind of what we got from this. I did, want, I did want to say, though, there is work to be done for sure here. Um, but as I was thinking about this message and, and, and these things that Jesus say, I did find myself smiling a lot thinking about our local expression of the church community. Um, I think there's a lot that we do that really lives into this prayer for unity. Um, we partner with other churches and organizations to serve our community all the time, and Justin mentioned that a little bit during the, the giving time, too. Table, CEF, the Chapel Hill Police Department, Life Church, St. Joseph, and a slew of other local congregations, um, local churches coming together to address the issue of affordable housing in our community, and we are in on all of that. Um, we also have been known 
as a sending church a lot. We call ourselves that, send people from our church to other congregations, and not just when they move. We send them to serve other churches locally when they feel called, right? There's no gatekeeping the kingdom here. And though the return of the pandemic has made it more sporadic historically, or in our history, we have used the fifth Sundays to join in worship with other churches that differ from us both racially and denominationally, and, um, but also serve this city with the heart of Jesus. And this Friday, Good Friday, you have an opportunity to participate in one of those expressions as we've got five churches from different denominations that worship in very different ways coming together to worship as one in the Lord and remembering what Jesus' sacrifice was about. At uh, Forest Theater, Good Friday service. So yeah, some hope. Um, at the end of this prayer, right before, and this is like right before Jesus is about to be betrayed and led to his imprisonment and murder, Jesus gives us this image of hope that I was really clinging to this week. Um, it's in verse 24, and I want to read the voice translation, which is just a translation of scripture I've fallen in love with. And it says, Father, I long for the time that those you have given me can join me in my place so that they may witness my glory when it comes from you. I long for the time. Jesus' hope is for us to have unity not only with each other, but also with him. So Jesus, in this part of the prayer, he's, he's forward-looking past the disciples, past the early church, past the later church, to us and beyond us, to reconciliation. So I'm going to close on that message of hope. <laughs> um, as we respond to worship today and to this message, we are going to be coming to the table together. And I didn't make the bread again, but next week is Easter. We're going to have risen bread, and I think I'm on it. So, Jesus is at the table with his disciples, and he takes the bread, kind of interrupts all their jolly moments, and he breaks it, and in a moment of seriousness says, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And they have no idea what's coming, right? And then he takes the cup and says, take, drink. This is my blood and the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And he says to do this in remembrance. And so we do. And so as you come here approaching and leading into Holy Week, May you remember Jesus' sacrifice, and will, may you remember Jesus' prayer for us, that we may be one. And may you remember that there is still hope, that reconciliation is coming.